because hope is a longing for future conditions over which you have no control. So, you know, whenever someone asks me if I have hope, um, I always tell them I don't have hope, I have agency. You know, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make sure that things turn out a certain way. You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. You just heard the voice of today's guest, Julia Barnes, the young filmmaker behind the documentary Sea of Life. Julia has been working on a new film project for the past two years, and she just launched a crowdfunding campaign, which means you can become a part of this new film called Bright Green Lies. Just search for Bright Green Lies on Indiegogo to find the campaign. And here's an audio clip that will give you a sense of the story that Julia is working to tell. If you can install a solar panel on your roof, you may not directly be seeing any smoke come out of any smokestacks, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. You can't produce a solar slash wind infrastructure without fossil fuels. To produce solar panels, you need extremely high purity silicon, something like 99.999% pure. And that's not found in nature. But what you have to do is you have to go find the purest silicon deposits that you can. And this is usually in the form of sand mining. And this happens around the world and it's highly, highly destructive. Because of the demand for high quality silica, there are islands off the coast of China that have disappeared completely. They have mined the island out of existence. They require rare earths and much of the rare earth minerals come from Baotu in China. And Baotu is essentially devoid of wildlife. And there is a basically 19 square mile tailings pond, tailings lake, in which nothing can grow. So don't tell me this has no effects. Don't tell me this is environmentally neutral. My name is Julia Barnes, and I'm a filmmaker. I made the documentary Sea of Life, which came out a couple of years ago. And this new film I've been working on for about the last three years, it's a film about mainstream solutions to environmental problems and why a lot of the things that are being purported as solutions are actually highly destructive to the environment and aren't going to solve our problems. Maybe you can start off by telling me where the inspiration for this new project, this new film you're working on, which is called Bright Green Lies, where the inspiration to tell this story come from? Yeah, well, it's kind of something that I had always had questions about through the whole process of this, right? So from the time I learned about what was happening to the natural world and was being exposed to a lot of the messaging from mainstream environmental groups and just seeing what they were promoting, I always felt like there was kind of a disconnect between my understanding of the problems and the kind of holistic understanding that, you know, these problems are mainly behavioral and they're caused by social choices and they're caused by the things that we do and the way society is set up and the systems that we have. And then seeing this kind of mainstream movement that was largely pushing for technological solutions to problems that, for me, I felt were not primarily technological problems. So it was kind of a question that I always had as I was going through and making this first documentary, Sea of Life, and every person who I interviewed, I would ask them kind of what they thought about these, you know, the mainstream technologies that you would hear about all the time, like solar and wind and hydro and things like that, and, you know, where this fit into everything. And I wasn't getting a lot of answers, but the last person who I interviewed for Sea of Life um, was Derek Jensen, 
And when I asked him that question, it kind of opened up a whole much larger conversation because he told me that he was working on a book about this, which is also called Bright Green Lies. And that became the basis for this next movie. So when he started talking to me about this, he told me all kinds of crazy stuff, like more than the fact that these technologies are not sufficient to solve the problems, is that in and of themselves, they cause a lot of problems. So he was telling me that there were entire islands off the coast of China that were being mined out of existence to produce high quality silica, to make solar panels, that by 2050, the installation of solar and wind is predicted to be the number one cause of habitat destruction on the planet, um, that there's enormous amounts of mining for things like copper and steel that goes into this, um, which is, of course, causing massive destruction to the natural world. And on top of that, all sorts of emissions. And so it just became really clear to me that this is something that is really important because the world is you know, pushing for this huge production of these technologies right now, but no one ever hears about the downsides of them. You know, you get this messaging from the mainstream groups and it's all, these things are clean and green and free and beautiful, and we're completely missing the other side of the story. And it's so utterly important, you know, if we want to solve the problems facing the natural world, we need to know about this. We need to be making informed decisions about the kind of solutions we want to support. You mentioned a few like specific examples of some of the stuff you're talking about, about how these uh, forms of energy production that are sort of have been labeled by our society right now as green and as like sort of the solution to climate change that, you know, they're not really as green as we think they are. <laughs> Let's work through that a little bit, because, I mean, it it seems like that's sort of the crux of the story you're trying to tell, um, if I'm interpreting that correctly. And, like, you know, let's let's tell people about, you know, what, like, some of the things you learned. Gosh, there's so many. So, for one thing, (laughs) I mean, you can look at just the destruction that is caused by the processes of making these technologies and realizing that, you know, the way that they're talked about, it's as if they grow on trees. It's as if solar panels and wind turbines just spring up out of nowhere. But of course, there's this whole big, long process that goes into making them involving mining, shipping, manufacturing, um, transporting these things all around the globe. Um, And a lot of these processes you just simply can't do without fossil fuels, right? So fossil fuels are required at every stage of the production process. So they actually require a lot of emissions um, to make these things. And you know, that's what they're being sold as, you know, solving the problem of emissions. And of course, they actually cause a lot of emissions. But on an even deeper level, um, we have this assumption that there's a baseline demand for energy, electricity, and that if you add more energy from something like solar or wind to the grid, that it displaces fossil fuels. But Research by a guy named Richard York has actually found that that's not really the case. So he came up with something that he calls the displacement paradox, which is that when you add energy from new sources like solar, wind, hydro, whatever, to the grid, um, rather than decreasing the amount of fossil fuels used, it just adds to the amount of energy available for consumption by society. So he found that it didn't really displace fossil fuels at all, that society just ends up using more energy. You know, we're in a growth economy, so any energy that we're adding to the grid, it's just 
we become a more high energy consumption society. That tends to be the result. And you see that looking back through the entire history of energy usage, right? So started out with people just burning wood, and then we add energy from coal, oil. We don't see less burning of wood. Um, we don't see when we add energy from nuclear, we don't see less coal or oil. It just everything. You look, look back through a graph of these things and everything's just stacking on top of each other. Um, nothing's displacing anything else in, in the whole. There is this huge environmental cost associated with, say, solar panels, wind turbines, etc., right? Um, but, like, we're in a global crisis, right? Like, yes, we need, like, ideally, everybody would be reducing the amount of energy that they consume. But, like, don't we need to simultaneously be building a renewable energy infrastructure? Like, even if there are some environmental, uh, like negative environmental impacts. Yeah. And when I say behavior, I don't mean behavior on an individual level. I mean like cultural, social level. And I know what you're getting at. Like there was a headline, like one of the things that someone in the film, Derek talks about is, um, that there was a headline in a paper that said, um, it was, it was about that they were putting in this massive, industrial solar field and solar energy production facility in the desert and the headline read sacrificing the desert to save the planet so this is kind of what you're getting at you know it's the idea that we're that we're making a small sacrifice but it's going to help the planet um, in the big picture but what derek says is well yes we're sacrificing the desert yes it's causing huge harm to the desert but it's not saving the planet because the planet itself does not need more industrial energy production, right? Like the planet needs for this to stop. So the idea that the idea that we're taking as a given any level of industrial production, any level of energy consumption, that we're taking as a given the system that we have right now and the civilization that we live in, this is kind of what the film comes to is that we need to be actually asking much deeper questions about that, um, about the way that society is set up, the way that it functions. Um, this kind of system of, of growth and production that we have right now, right? So, you know, when you think about what most energy is used for in this society, it's mostly used for non-essential luxuries that are destroying the planet in one way or another, right? It's used to produce cheap consumer goods. It's used to power electronics and entertainment. It's used for transportation. It's used for the military. You know, it's mostly used for these kind of things that you know, they're products of civilization, they're things that we've had for the last few hundred years. But you, when you think about it, the history of our species, it's really an anomaly to have this high energy lifestyle and to have the world set up the way it is. It's only the last few hundred years that we've had anything remotely re resembling um, the kind of civilization that we live in today. So the thing that the film gets to is like, that's really what we need to be questioning. And the idea, the premise that all, what all of these so-called solutions to, to global warming have in common is that they take industrial civilization and capitalism as a given, and the natural world is having to conform to those systems. But really, we can't negotiate with nature, right? It's the human systems we've set up that we can and need to change. Sure. And, and I mean, I, I, I like this line of thought. For the majority of our existence, we have lived without this insanely high level of energy consumption, right? But how do we take it away from people, right? And 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 I hear, I, th I think you made a really interesting point of like, well, I'm not talking about like, 
you know, this idea of voluntary individual behavior change is, you know, uh, a, a concept that is, you know, sits clearly uh, within the realm of, of greenwashing, right? I mean, that's what every corporation wants us to think, that it's our responsibility to change our individual reactions and that catastrophic climate change is like that burden should be placed on each one of us individually because we didn't make that behavior change, right? Um, and that's a, you know, has become a very sort of uh, outdated way, at least for people within the activist community to think about climate change, even though every single corporate entity um, and a lot of governmental systems are still pushing those ideas. Um, but like, if you go down this path of like, okay, well, the real solution is to totally reshape our society. Like, if you were to ask me, like, how, like, what's a, what's the most realistic way that we could get to that point where society is reshaped in such a dramatic way that we, you know, reduce that level of energy consumption, like back to a a level that is like sustainable for, uh, you know, that prevents this massive disruption of like global ecosystems and the sixth mass extinction that we're going through. Like I would say a catastrophic event you know what I mean? Like how how do we shift? You know what I mean? Like you're talking about you're talking about an apocalyptic scenario in my mind. I mean, I think the situation we're in right now is pretty apocalyptic. You know, I, I wouldn't define it as a, as anything short of that. We're losing the oceans. We're losing life on the planet. So anything we can do to um, halt that is going to be a, a little bit short of, of the level of apocalyptic we're in right now, you know. Um, we're kind of on track to lose everything, but yeah, I get it. Um, I'm not talking about a voluntary transformation on any kind of mass scale in this society. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, it would be great if it, you know, if it did, because it seems like it's pretty simple. We understand what we need to do. We understand what's causing these problems, but I just don't see it happening. It seems like whether I'm talking to the public or whether I'm observing the actions of politicians, it seems like people are more attached to their way of life and to the short-term benefits that they're gaining from the system than they are to life on the planet, which is pretty heartbreaking. But so I don't think that any kind of voluntary transformation is going to happen to a sane and sustainable way of being. Um, we're either going to be forced to do it because nature forces us to do it, and that is coming in the very, you know, not too long term. But um, I think it could also happen quicker if a few people forced that kind of change, right? Because we also have this idea um, kind of in the mainstream environmental movement that we just have to convince everybody and that change happens through convincing masses of people and then everyone making this magical shift. But the reality is when you look at any change that's happened Throughout history, it's been just a small percentage of the population that pushes for that change to happen, you know, whether it was women getting the right to vote or ending slavery in the U.S., um, things like that. It's a it's a very small percentage, less than 7 percent of the population, you know, push for that change and the rest of the people just go along with whatever's happening. But on the kind of scale of what we're seeing going on right now, yeah, I think if we're going to if we're going to intervene and if we're going to, you know, have these changes happen because the sooner we can stop all this destruction, the more life we're going to have left on this planet. Um, 
And yeah, the only realistic way I could see that happening is if a small group of people force that upon you know the rest of the world. Um, I don't think it's going to happen by consensus. I don't think it's going to happen voluntarily. I just think um, we could, a small group of people could make it such that it's not possible for for the rest of the people to continue burning fossil fuels. You know, physically stopping the destruction in a lot of cases, making it so it's not possible for people to continue industrial fishing, industrial forestry, any of these things that are destroying life on the planet, physically intervening. That seems like a real possibility. You have a character in your film who uh, is, you know, quoting a, a, a former director of Greenpeace who is expressing this attitude that like, okay, well, like this is really a human problem, right? Like climate change is a human problem. Like we shouldn't be worried about the natural world. Like the natural world is going to be fine. It will recover. The planet will recover. It's humanity that we should be concerned about. The natural world isn't really part of the conversation anymore. You know, Kumi Naidu, the former head of Greenpeace, I was watching him being interviewed the other day and he was saying, you know, look, the planet's going to survive, the oceans are going to survive, the forests are going to survive. It's really about can we save ourselves or not. And I just saw that. I'm thinking, what the hell are you saying? This is somebody who's considered to be, you know, one of the top environmentalists in the world. And he's saying we don't have to worry about the forests or the oceans. I mean, to me, that just betrays a complete lack of empathy and connection to the natural world. I don't know how you could possibly say that when we're in the midst of the sixth great mass extinction and it's being caused by industrial culture. It's being caused by the same institutions, the same economies, the same systems, the same raw materials, the same extractive mindset that is being used for these renewable energy technologies. That is such a universal like perspective. Like we've seen this shift as far as how we talk about climate change. Like I've watched this um, over the last like 10 to 15 years. Um, and, and I, I think I understand why I think it's like, it's, I think it's like intentional and it's pragmatic, you know, it's like a, uh, as far as like the, the strategy behind it, I don't necessarily think that guy from Greenpeace thinks that, like that we should just not care about the six mass extinction. Um, I think it's like, you know, there's been this like calculation within the environmental like movement that has become mainstream where it's like we should be talking about like people don't care about wildlife but people care about people so we should be highlighting and focusing specifically on like the negative things that climate change is going to cause for like humanity and human society you know what i mean Um, yeah it was very intentional and um one of the people who i interviewed for the movie max told me that there's something called the 350 you know the organization 350.org um they have a style guide and in it it says when you're talking about climate change, make sure you always focus on how this impacts people, individuals in their lives, focus on humans, not the natural world. So, I mean, in terms of that organization, and probably most of these organizations, it was a very intentional, strategic decision. And yeah, I do understand that, um, being strategic about how you talk to people. But at the same time, I feel like it is a strategy that not only is very, you know, removes us from reality a little bit because obviously humans and certainly industrial civilized humans are not the primary victims of climate change. Um, So it's kind of ignoring where the most of the problem is at. But also, I don't think it's a strategy that worked because, I mean, at least a lot of the people I've talked to kind of 
there seems to be this sense that, well, humans deserve whatever comes at us. You know, we cause these problems, so we're going to get the consequences. And that seems almost just in a way. But when you talk about how this affects other species, they didn't cause these problems. And that's where I feel like people have more of an empathy towards these other species because they're completely innocent in all this. You know, they're not the ones burning the fossil fuels, but they're the ones being driven extinct by it, you know? So at least what I've found um, going around with my documentary is like people care and are motivated to protect other species and they see that these other species are vulnerable and they can't, you know, speak up for themselves. They can't do anything about this. Um, people seem more motivated to care about other species than they do to care about humanity. There's almost a sense that humanity deserves whatever's going to befall them. <laughs> um, so I, I don't necessarily believe that. Like, I think I mean, it's pretty disheartening when you see how some people really don't care about the natural world. And, you know, some people I'm like, yeah, whatever, <laughs> you know, if we go extinct, you know, there are, there are a lot of people who are just not too great, but also there's a lot of people who this is just, this is just the reality of the situation that, that we are in. We were born into it. We didn't, you know, I wasn't there when they were creating all these systems that, that are in place today that govern, you know, the way the world works. And, you know, most people, they're just, they're born into this. They have to do what they have to do to survive in this system. Um, it's not really their fault necessarily, but we're also the ones who are going to be paying the consequences of, of what's happening. I'm curious uh, what you think about the Green New Deal um, and what you think about, you know, this growing political movement that we're seeing, at least here in the U.S., um, revolving around climate change. You know, there's a lot of youth activism surrounding the climate change issue. A lot of it is focused on this idea of, like, passing something like a Green New Deal um, but also just putting the, the debate on climate change, like front and center, um, within the political arena. Yeah. I mean, the Green New Deal, it's not too new and it's not too green. I mean, it's just more industrialism and more of what we've already got. Right. So it's basically this term that they're using for basically asking for this 100% renewable future, all this increased production of solar panels, wind turbines, hydro, biomass, whatever it is that they want to call green. Um, and in it, they've got stuff about jobs and justice and all this other stuff. But the primary thing that they're asking for is this renewable energy trans transition, transformation, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, it's just, it, it kind of sucks to see this happening because it's, it's not, that's not, really going to save the natural world. It's just kind of this progression of what mainstream environmentalism has been asking for for a very long time. But now for the first time, it's kind of becoming a serious possibility in the in the political realm, you know, that they might go for this and and try to make this happen. Um, even in Canada recently, I was watching a video with the prime minister talking about the fact that he had just um, approved a massive tar sands pipeline that's going to go through and this is going to be terrible for the environment but the good news is he's going to take all the money that is made from this tar sands pipeline and invest that in clean renewable energy so <laughs> i mean this just seems to be 
the thing about all this renewable stuff is just a, it's a really easy answer and it's just a way for people to say okay let's keep everything the same and we'll just change over the energy source and we can feel good about you know maintaining everything else the way it is and we can we can feel good about ourselves because we've got we're putting in renewable energy we're investing in renewable energy so everything's going to be okay um it just it it's a way of avoiding asking hard questions about the depth of what needs to change and yeah just kind of kind of pushing things off a little longer i was listening to a um I think he's a, a climate journalist. I was listening to an interview with a climate journalist called Darge Mail, and he used a term that I absolutely love. He called it soft denialism. So, you know, we've all heard of climate denial, where you, you know, deny that climate change exists at all, but this new term, I feel like really, um, I don't know, encapsulates really well a lot of what's going on right now, like soft denial. So you're you know, not denying that climate change exists, you're admitting that it exists and that it's a problem, but it's kind of a denial of the severity of the problem or of what really needs to be done in order in order to solve it. In, in my mind, an, an essential component of some sort of solution, right? And I mean, I think, honestly, I think we're at a point where the idea of a solution is a fallacy because we're already in the sixth mass extinction. Like, I think it's unrealistic to, to say that we're going to completely prevent it. Um, but I also think that, like, because we're in it, um, I think that the things that we do now as a society have an outsized impact, right? And, like, if we can make some change in our society now that, you know, maybe down the road prevents, say, you know, 20% of the species that we're going to go extinct from going extinct, like, that's 20% of the species that live on the planet is an insane number of species. Like, that's an enormous impact, right? So, I mean, we're not really talking about solutions. We're talking about mitigation, right? Mitigation of the effect of this global catastrophe that we're already in, in my opinion. Like, where should our energy come from? I guess is, I guess is really my question. You know what I mean? Like, from the perspective of, you know, the authors of this book, like... Like, is is there such a thing as, like, clean energy? Like, are they advocating that we just totally stop using energy? Like, in, in the way that we conceive of it, you know what I mean? As far as, like, our modern lifestyle that we have become accustomed to, you know? Are they advocating for an end to that? Short answer, yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and sort of to answer the kind of earlier part of your question, talking about um, what kinds of solutions they're advocating for. Um, one of the things that I that I love and is really pragmatic is that the three authors of the book, and I mean myself also, what they advocate for is both reform work and revolutionary work, right? So kind of this idea that anything we can do to stave off the negative impacts, just like you were talking about with the species going extinct, you know, in the short term is a good thing. Anything we can do to make sure that some doors remain open for wildlife as things become increasingly chaotic, you know, means there's a greater chance for, for life to continue on this planet. So they absolutely advocate, you know, kind of an 
all of the above approach to activism, right? Like we need everything. We need people doing that reform work. We need people trying to protect every last piece of land and every species that we have. But if that's all we do, then this culture will continue to grind away at life on the planet until there's nothing left. So what we also need is people doing that kind of revolutionary work and the you know dismantling of the systems that are destroying life on the planet. Um, we need everything. But by everything, we don't mean we need solar and wind and stuff like that. You know, there's certain things that are absolutely not solutions that are not, then they're not even, they're not saving anything off. They're not reducing emissions. They're not um, protecting any, any parts of wildlife, you know, like the things that were, that, that are being called out in the book and in the film, and it goes beyond solar and wind. It also talks about electric cars and it talks about biomass is actually, you know, when we talk about renewable energy, there's this idea that we're talking mostly about solar and wind, but if you look at countries that are claiming to be reaching 100% renewable or almost renewable, what you'll often find is the vast majority of the energy comes from either hydro, which is known to be you know, they call it methane bombs. It produces enormous amounts of methane as well as destroying the rivers. Um, or it comes from biomass. So if you look at places in the EU, um, it's like 60% of their renewable energy actually comes from biomass, which is cutting down forests, burning them, um, which releases more carbon than just coal, but it's not counted. It's counted as carbon neutral. So a lot of countries are switching to this as a way to fulfill the agreements that they made in, in Paris. And so there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. So you know, even even when we're talking about renewable energy, I, I think we're, you know, people think they're talking about one thing, but we're actually talking about something entirely different is what's happening in the real world. But I mean, the point and the reason why it was so important to make this book and to make this film is that there are certain types of things that we can do that are reform work, that are, you know, staving off the destruction, um, protecting areas of the natural world for the time being, um, and that are, you know, a good thing. But then there's certain things that are not solving the problem and not not slowing it down. I mean, all this increase in renewables, it has been growing, right? It has been, we've been adding more energy from solar and wind and hydro and biomass and whatever to the grid. There have been countries that have, you know, gotten on board with this very quickly and have added they they some of them are claiming to be 100 percent renewable right now i mean we can have different discussions about what counts as renewable and whatever but global emissions of co2 are are increasing regardless of, of all of this push for for renewable technology and all of this growth in renewable technology it hasn't even it hasn't slowed down emissions it hasn't even slowed down the rate of acceleration of emissions you know um we need to be conscious of, of where we're putting our efforts and whether that's actually in, in the real world having an impact or not. Like I recognize what you say, like what you say about the Green New Deal and how like really a lot of it is just focused on building up this like quote unquote renewable energy infrastructure, which this question of like how renewable is it really, right? Um, but like a, a huge part of it, a huge part of just the fight itself for a Green New Deal is a fight against corporate greed. Because, like, yeah, a lot of those 
uh, fossil fuel companies have co-opted like small components of like renewable energy to kind of make themselves look good. But like those companies are going to fight really hard to prevent anything like that from ever getting passed, you know? So like, I guess my question to would be, should we be a part of that fight? Should we be trying to like shift opinions from within that movement? Or are you talking about an entirely new movement that is counter to like everything that's going on, all the support that like the green new deal is getting right now, like politically seeing like, yeah, I understand. It's a lot of it is a fight for recognition that the environmental problems are problems at all. And a lot of it is well-meaning people going in and you know wanting to see things change. And I think that's why this whole renewable energy transformation and all these mainstream solutions are becoming so popular and so mainstream is because people are recognizing that we're in a very serious problem and they want to see things change. And this is the solutions that have been promoted um, by the mainstream groups for a very long time. So, you know, as soon as you become an activist and as soon as you start to care about these problems, these are the solutions that you start to push for. I mean, the same thing happened with me, like when I first got into learning about what's happening to the environment and caring about this stuff. I wanted to, you know, get solar panels on my roof and get behind all this green technology stuff because I didn't know that there was a negative consequence to it. I didn't know about the other side of it. Um, It's just sort of this natural pairing, like, like the renewable energy industry has done a really great job of associating itself with environmentalism. Like the two are almost inseparable. They're just, it's become synonymous with saving the planet is this push for solar panels, wind turbines, et cetera. So, I mean, part of it is just like, and you look at the, the youth movement that's going on and this whole kind of thing that has arisen around school strikes for climate. And you see so many passionate people giving wonderful speeches and caring and recognizing that we're in a serious, serious problem. So, I love the fact that there are movements going on with people who care and who recognize that this is a serious problem. I love the fact that there are people who are wanting to see things change. I just feel like a lot of what these movements are pushing for is something that just not too much thought has gone behind. You know, it's just something that we have this image of these green technologies paired with saving the planet and we, you know, you see all these movements, um, whether it's the youth movement, whether it's the Green New Deal, and you, you know, go to their websites and you look for what their actual demands are. And what they're demanding is 100% renewable future. I mean, that seems to be the, you know, pinnacle of all of this, all of these movements. This is what they're pushing for. Well, they're pushing for, you know, I think more broadly, you could say, like, people are pushing for this idea of, like, net zero greenhouse emissions. But, like, that, you know, and, and, and I think there's an assumption within a lot of that that we will get to that point through renewable energy technology. But, like, I think people also understand that, like, it's it, it it's not it's not all just converting to renewable energy 
infrastructure it's also like there's also a necessary like reduction in consumption right but i I think yeah understanding but when you look on the websites for for any of these things um that's not stated on there at all so all they're saying like all that they have written explicitly is that they're calling for this 100 percent renewable transition they don't talk about reductions in in consumption they don't talk about too much about efficiency or, or anything else whether or not whether or not the actual people who are out there marching believe that this is what needs to happen. Um, that's not what is explicitly being called for by these movements. Um, when you actually look at what's written up on their websites, at least. But so anyway, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's great that people are very passionate about this stuff. And it's great that people are wanting to see things change. And I think these movements could, you know, maybe if they knew some more information about this stuff maybe they could start pushing for other things but right now we have movements that are that what they're explicitly calling for is not going to be sufficient to save life on the planet so you know if you've got a movement that's calling for something that's not going to be a solution then obviously it's not going to work right so tell me like what do you hope that your film um when it comes out like you know what do you hope to accomplish with this this tool that you're creating um, to educate people, you know? I mean, are you hoping to kind of reform the movement itself? Um, maybe. I don't know how far this movie is going to get seen. I don't know how much of an impact it's going to have. I hope that it'll, you know, show people and wake a lot of people up to the fact that maybe the route that they've been going down is not the one that's going to really have an impact on these issues. Um, I hope it'll make people take these things a lot more seriously because it seems like this idea that all we need to do is have a technological fix is, well, it it just helps people ignore a lot of the deeper issues um, associated with these problems and avoid asking those kind of questions about what needs to be changed. So yeah, I mean, it's a film that's going to provoke a lot of, you know, deeper conversations about this stuff. But really, the reason that I made it is because we're in a desperate situation right now. Um, we don't have time uh, to waste on things that aren't going to work. And I hope it'll inspire a few really passionate people to do some kind of bigger things and mm, t- tackle this on a meaningful level. Do you think about the types of of things that you anticipate like to see play out on a global scale over the course of your lifetime? Yeah, (laughs) I think about that a lot. Um, So in my lifetime, I see like a scenario where industrial civilization continues and continues ripping away at, at life on this planet until there's almost nothing left. And it doesn't look good. I mean, that's the worst case scenario. Um, in my opinion. And that's, I mean, one of the things that I think all this push for renewable energy, they're just looking for more ways to power empire and to allow this civilization to continue a little bit longer, you know, to continue exploiting life on the planet, to power that destruction. Um, So kind of a worst case scenario for me is actually if you, if, (laughs) if they keep, I mean, if they get all this renewable energy and they, all of it is just a way to stave off the collapse of civilization, to stave off the end to this destruction, to let us 
continue to exploit and the natural world and to reap the benefits of that for a few people in the industrialized world for a little bit longer. And I feel like the longer that continues, the less life we're going to have left on this planet. Because it doesn't take very long for life to come back to the planet. Um, once we stop the destruction, plants will come back. They will sequester a lot of CO2. Um, just, gosh, once industrial fishing is no longer possible, life will come back to the ocean. And the ocean is, you know, it's, that's where most of the biomass is and all that life sequesters carbon. So we could see things turn around in terms of climate change. I mean, we could absolutely sequester as much carbon as we've put out, um, if not more. And once the destruction stops, life will come back to the planet. And we've seen, I mean, I've seen personally examples of places where things were almost wiped out. And once the destruction stopped, once people decided to stop ripping life out of those areas, life came back in an enormous way. And they're beautiful places today. So if that could happen on a mass scale, we could we could see life return to this planet. We could see a really beautiful world for all species. And, you know, for us, too, we depend on this planet. I mean, all of the benefits that we think we get come at a cost that is paid by other species and by future generations and ourselves in the future, really. I mean, it's those of us who are alive today, those of us who are young today, we're going to be paying for this in the future as well. So we could see it. We could see it turn around in a good way. That was Julia Barnes, the filmmaker behind Sea of Life and Bright Green Lives. If you enjoyed this episode of the Eyes on Conservation podcast, you can become a part of our inner circle by joining our Patreon campaign. Visit patreon.com slash wildlenscollective to learn more. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of the Wild Lens Collective. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.